Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. You might not immediately know the name of Robert Wadlow, but when I tell you that he was the Alton Giant, you'll likely know who I mean. He was the world's tallest man ever, 8 feet 11 inches tall, but his life was short. He died at the age of 22, world famous because of his giantism, and a beloved figure in his native Alton, Illinois. Robert Wadlow was born 100 years ago this year. His story intrigued our St. Louis Public Radio intern, Char Dastin, who looked more closely into the Wadlow story. I sat down with Char yesterday, and he told me that Wadlow's size at birth was not exceptional. He uh, was born, I think he was eight and a half pounds at, at birth, the same, same weight as a normal baby. Um, but he did, uh, he did start growing almost immediately. He, he grew very fast. And by the time he started kindergarten, he was the size of a teenage boy. What exactly was the condition that, that caused giantism? Robert Wadlow's giantism was caused by um, a growth in his pituitary gland. He did not have um, acromegaly, as, as some people think that he had. Um, basically, the difference is um, giantism starts in childhood, and your body grows proportionally, and acromegaly begins in adulthood, and you still get that excess of human growth hormone, but it causes... Uh, just one part of your body to grow disproportionately. What was his early life like? Do we know? Do we know enough about him as a as, as a boy and then growing into a, a young adulthood? Well, in Dan Brannon's book, Boy Giant, he does talk to people who knew uh, Robert in grade school and in high school. And um, from what we know, he was a pretty normal kid. Um, you know, we have records of him. Uh, you know playing outside with his friends. He loved sports. He did play basketball, but he was not the star player that you might think he was. Um, he played the role that he called uh, the dropper. He would stand by the basket and uh, his teammates would, would pass him the ball and he would just drop it in. He did have a lot of uh, mobility issues even growing up. Um, being so tall, he put a lot of weight on his legs and feet and so he had uh, he had very little feeling in his in his legs and in his feet how did people react to him early on everywhere he went he got stares apparently his father had to convince uh, people on the train or on the on the bus to give him a discounted fare because they thought that he was a teenager or he was an adult um, even when he was in third grade my understanding is that as kids will do, that he uh, was subject to some bullying during his youth. I'm sure he was. There's not really a, a much of a record of it, but certainly he was stared at and, uh, you know, wherever he went. Um, and, you know, eventually um, when he got famous and went on tours, people everywhere they would ask demeaning questions mm -hmm. like, how's the weather up there? So he did experience uh, definitely a lot of bullying from the crowds that would gather around him as he was just out in public. Well, what sort of adjustments had to be made to his size as he was growing up? A lot of things, actually. And his family really had to make do in a lot of ways. But in elementary school, uh, his his school, basically they made him his own desk. They took a, a normal-sized desk and they um, separated the table part from the chair part so that he had room for his legs. And the, the actual table part of the desk, they rose up on a couple of, of four-by-fours so he get, could get his knees under it. And the desk is actually um, on display in the Wadlow exhibit at the Alton 
Museum of History and Art. And it's one of the things that I saw when I was in Alton. You talked to the president of that institution. That's right. That's right. Brian Combs, the president of the Alton Museum of History and Art. And um, he told me um, in my interview with him about the desk and about the ways that people accommodated Robert. That's one thing I, I really find remarkable about the man himself and the family and I guess the town is that they made some way to make it happen, to make his life comfortable, to make him fit in and to make him feel normal. And that's probably a very great example, something as simple as just putting wood underneath it to raise it up to allow him to go to school. This is well before ADA, and this is a great example of what they did for the young man. I can't imagine that uh, the young Robert uh, wasn't really set apart by his, his friends and oh, yeah. uh, his, his classmates oh, yeah. with, with all of these accommodations that had to be made. Definitely. I mean, and he definitely did a lot to accommodate himself when he got to be a teenager um, and started learning how to drive. He and his dad would take the front seat out of the car and he would drive from the back. So he had enough legroom. As he got older um, and as he got up, you know, seven and a half, eight feet tall, um, he was basically, you know, stooping to get through just about any door. Um, and because he was not very mobile and because his feet were so big, he basically had to walk upstairs sideways as well. What did Combs have to say with regard to the way other young people reacted to him? He did have a lot of friends in grade school and in high school, um, and, and he was a very easygoing guy, so very very easy to get along with. But to strangers, he was an oddity. He was a curiosity. And as I mentioned um, he he did eventually get famous and start touring the country, and um, and as he went from city to city, uh, the same things kept happening to him again and again. Basically, uh, people were suspicious. They thought he wasn't really as tall as he was. They would invade his privacy to try and see if he was faking. Basically, did did Combs address that? Yes, he he talked about it. Almost inevitably, wherever he went, somebody usually of a younger age, would either kick him in his shins or, you know, trying to figure out if he was faking his height, if that was not his natural disposition. And they were always accusing him of either walking on stilts or doing something. You can imagine, um, you know, just how exhausting that would get. But, you know, he was known as being a very gracious guy, and I think uh, he learned pretty quickly, you know, experiencing all those kicks in the shins and all those um, snotty remarks that he just had to sort of, you know, respond in kind. And he got through it. And yet he put himself out there in front of the public uh, at large uh, during a very tough time in, in America's history and his family's history, didn't he? He did. I guess his public appearances uh, began pretty early in life, uh, you know, just to raise a little extra money for his family. He would do lemonade sales outside uh, <laughs> in his front yard. His mom would make the lemonade and he would sell it. And people were always trying to get him to uh, to stand up so they could see how tall he really was. Um, and he would make them buy a glass of lemonade first. But basically, it kind of expanded out from there. Um, uh, you know, people... Um, as he got older, um, people, you know, rumors spread about how not only how tall he was, but also how nice he was and how how good he was at you know being leading a public life. So eventually, um, he he started college um, in 1936 at Shirtliff College in, in Alton, um, but he only stayed there for a year. 
Um, it was hard for him to get around campus um, because of his mobility issues. But also um, the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, uh, found out about him um, and uh, offered to take him on the road with them um, in their in their circus. He was hesitant about that. Um, uh, he didn't want to be known as a circus freak, um, and his his parents didn't either. But um, but uh, it was hard for him, you know, um, to get around his, his campus, and also his family needed the money. He was from a working class family. I was just going to point that out. That's why he went with the circus was because they they needed the money. It was the height of the depression. Oh yeah, uh, needless yeah. to say. And he traveled all over the country this way. And my understanding, too, is that his father tagged along to protect him. Yes, um, not only to protect him, but to promote him as well. I think um, his father um, and mother were protective of him, but they also understood um, just how how famous he got. Um, and and uh, his father... Uh, when they would go from town to town, um, first with the circus and then um, the next year with uh, the International Shoe Company um, who uh, who gave him free shoes um, in return for promoting their product. Uh, and when he would go into towns, um, you know, thousands of people would gather and his father would, uh, would do things like um, – he would stand on a big flatbed truck and put a $5 bill on Robert's head and they would tr- get a really tall boy from the crowd to try and uh, reach and, uh, and take the $5 bill off the top of Robert's head and they could never do it. So yeah, Robert's father tried to keep his appearance as dignified but not that dignified. Do we have any idea of what kind of money he made when he was doing this sort of thing? Uh, you know, um, I'm not sure the exact amount, um, but he certainly was paid, you know, appearance by appearance. Um, and apparently uh, by the time he died, uh, he was making a pretty decent living off of these these tours. Let's talk for a moment about these shoes that were made for them. Obviously, like everything else, he, it was an extra, extra large plus, I suppose. Uh, talk about them. They literally look like something that you could – float down the river in. Oh, yeah. Um, so his shoes, he kept growing for his entire life and and his feet kept growing as well. So um, the last uh, pair of shoes that he wore were a size 37 and a half. Um, and uh, shortly before he died, he was actually being fitted for a size 42. Um, these shoes, I mean, you you really have to go to the museum in, in Alton and see one of them. They're, they're, they're you, they're unimaginably big, and uh, the International Shoe Company would actually make extras, and um, and they would send them uh, ahead of Robert's appearances to the local shoe store, uh, so everyone would know Robert was coming. The, and uh, my impression is that there are a number of places in the country today where his shoes are on display. Oh yes, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of them are still in in old shoe stores. Mm-hmm. But with all of this. Uh, it kept coming back to Alton. He did a lot of traveling, made some money, made who knows how much, but enough to survive the Depression. But Alton was his first love. Yes. Um, you know, he, he loved Alton. Um, and I think probably the main reason he loved Alton was, you know, he was stared at wherever he went um, and, and, you know, crowds would gather 
Um, and even in Alton, he got some of some reactions like that. But you know, Alton was really the only place in the world where he had a devoted group of family and friends who really uh, treated him like a normal person. And uh, Dan Brannon, um, the author of Boy Giant, his biography, um, addressed that in in my interview with him. I think he would get burned out sometimes when he was out on the road for so long. He loved Alton and he loved home and he really wanted to come home always. And people treated him differently here. I mean, basically, he was just like another one of the the folks that lived here. And they didn't really look at him so much for his height. They looked at him as a person. And I think he felt he was kind of like a you know, somebody to gawk at everywhere else he went. But here he felt more comfortable and more at home. And the the people treated him obviously very, very well. Oh, yes. They, they loved their, their native son. They, they did and they still do. Yeah. yeah, there's a wonderful statue of him there and statues of him in many parts of the country too. Uh, again, as a result of his touring, is that what uh, what they're doing in these various places? Yeah, I know about the Alton statue. Um, it's made of bronze, um, and it's slightly larger than than life size um, because bronze shrinks a little bit. Um, but um, it's still there in Alton. It was unveiled in in 1985 to great fanfare, and um, currently uh, the the latest project is to uh, refit a new pair of glasses on uh, onto his uh, his statue. Apparently. Uh, it's hard to to stick you know a pair a piece of metal onto another piece of metal, so I think they're going to have to do a little bit of surgery. Well, we know that uh, we know how the people of Alton feel about him, uh, and you have some actual sound of him talking about the way he feels about Alton. I do. Um, he uh, this was during his brief um, Barnum and Bailey Circus tour. Uh, they were in New York uh, performing. At uh, at Madison Square Garden, and um, while he was there, he appeared on a radio program in New York. Um, this was on WHN, um, and it was a radio show called "Calling All Parties." Um, you'll hear Robert's voice. He had um, obviously a, a, a deep voice, but not the deepest voice in the world. I guess you might describe it as heavy, or I've heard it described as as guttural. And another great thing about this this interview that you'll hear is that uh, the style of the host is completely different than um, you know St. Louis on the air with Don Marsh. It sounds a lot more scripted, and all the ums and uhs are are taken out. Well, for one thing, Alt uh, was the scene of one of the uh, famous Lincoln Douglas debates, and for another, the Lewis Clark expedition made their headquarters a little while on the outskirts of Alton. Then we had the notorious Elijah Lovejoy assassination. You see, uh, Lovejoy was an abolitionist in the Civil War period. Yes, I remember that. Gosh, Alton certainly has had a share of glory, hadn't it? Weren't there any uh, Indian massacres? No, I don't think there was. But there is an Indian legend about the Python bird. Well, tell me about that, Bob. Well, uh, many years ago, the Indians claimed that there was a big, terrible bird that nested on the, the bluffs above Alton. And whenever an Indian brave would venture down near the bluff, uh, this big bird would pounce on him and eat him. So one day, a very courageous Indian offered to uh, uh, to uh, have himself sacrificed to this high bird so that his tribe would be free of this terrible thing. 
he goes on to tell the story of the Paisaw bird. Um, this interview, by the way, took place uh, in 1937, so he was 19 years old. And you hear, you know, Robert was really proud of this interview in particular um, because I think the interviewer, you know, really took the time to to talk to Robert about his interests, his interest in local history in Alton, as you hear there. And he also goes on to talk about Robert's uh, hobbies, his love of photography, for one thing. Right. It's a very sad story uh, in in the way that it ended. Uh, I don't know what the life expectancy of somebody with giantism uh, would would have been. Do you? I don't know. Um, I know that uh, there were other uh, very tall people known as known as giants um, from Robert's time um, who at least lived into their thirties or forties into middle age. So. Um, Robert died when he was 22, which would have been young even by giant standards at the time. And the cause of his death uh, was also very unusual and uh, and and makes the sad story even sadder. Yes. Um, sadly, uh, he was not able to return home before he died. He died while he was out on tour. He was in Manistee, Michigan um, in 1940, uh, marching in a parade. He had some blisters on his ankle, and uh, they chafed against uh, an ankle brace that he was wearing. Uh, he developed an infection, and he died just a couple of weeks later. No antibiotics to help uh, at this particular time in our history. No, they there really weren't. As soon as they found out how bad uh, Robert's infection was, uh, they flew his uh, his mother and his siblings out from Alton immediately because they, they pretty much knew he was going to die. You've spent a lot of time, uh, Char, researching this. What What is your takeaway from the Robert Wadlow story? It's important to realize that Robert, I mean, he certainly was an unusual guy in, in his height. If you go to the museum in Alton, they have a life-size cardboard cut out of him and you realize that he was so tall that if he was standing up, you really couldn't even look him in the eye without craning your neck. Um, but at the same time, it really struck me that Robert made it work. You know, um, he his kindness and his graciousness, his ability to be diplomatic, even in the face of gawking crowds and in some cases some fairly negative and insulting press – it goes to show that um, you can really work with any situation you're given. It takes a very special personality to be able to cope with with uh, what he had to go through during his short, short life. It sure does. And it goes to show that uh, Robert was uh, a pretty normal, kind, down-to-earth guy. Yeah. Well, thank you for putting this together. It's a very interesting story, Robert Wadlow. I mean, many people in this part of the country certainly have heard of him, but probably haven't uh, known too much about them. Thank you for putting this together. Thanks, Don. And uh, I should say, before I go, February 22nd, 2018, uh, will be Robert's centennial. And the Alton Museum of History and Art is putting together a couple of, of things to honor him. They're going to do a, uh, a gravesite ceremony on the day. And they're also putting together a collage of photos and memories of Robert on their website. It'll be a big day in, uh, in Alton, Illinois. It sure will. That's our departing intern, Char Dastin, talking about Robert Wadlow, the Alton Giant.
Yesterday was his last day with us. He is returning to Chicago and has his own radio program scheduled there. We thank him for his time with us and for his Robert Wadlow story. Archived versions of past St. Louis On the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.